0: Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in today. I believe that God's gonna use his word once again to encourage your heart in a special way. If you wanna know more about Shelter Cove, check us out at sheltercovelive.com. But again, I pray that God uses this message to encourage your heart in a special way today. Hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Open up with me to James chapter 2. While you're turning to James 2, let me introduce myself. My name's Chad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Shelter Cove. If you are joining us for the first time, uh, welcome, and you are catching us right in the middle of our series through James. We're going line by line, verse by verse, through the epistle, through the letter of James now I got to be straight with you right out of the gates here I have kind of a love-hate relationship with this book and I mean that with full respect and full adoration for the Word of God I'll tell you why the book of James is an aggressive little epistle in the New Testament I have affectionately referred to this book as the pitbull of the New Testament there's very little that is diplomatic there's very little that is politically correct uh, the book of James just kind of grabs you by the collar and doesn't let go. Uh, and I love it for that because it has this really powerful way of just cutting through the fog. Like it it cuts through the chatter. Uh, it seems to just get right down to the, to the brass tacks. Uh, but that's also what makes it kind of a hard read. Uh, this book will serve up in spades some spiritual humility. It, it has humility on tap and if you ever need to just be knocked down a couple of pegs crack open the book of James Uh, the words in here are powerful the truth that is in this epistle is powerful the wisdom that's in this epistle is powerful but I'll I'll tell you one thing that makes this book really land it really hits home for me is knowing the story of James the guy that actually wrote this epistle he's the half-brother of Jesus the younger brother of Jesus, Christ himself. Uh, Poor James got away with nothing when he was younger, could not blame anything on his older brother. Uh, He grows up and and is actually a little bit uh, disenfranchised with Jesus. He he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. Uh, Him and the rest of his brothers think Jesus is kind of a spiritual weirdo, and, and they distance themselves from their older brother until he resurrects from the grave. And it's then that James becomes a powerful, ferocious leader in the early church. Uh, He helps lead the church through some really important doctrinal issues. Church history will record that he meets his death one day in the temple. He's proclaiming the gospel of his older brother, Jesus Christ explaining to people that you are not reconciled by keeping the law. You are reconciled because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. And He freely gives over His righteousness to those who believe. More on that coming soon. The Pharisees want nothing to do with this message. They're doing all they can to silence Him. They're doing all they can to drown Him out. They bind Him up, take Him to the highest point of the temple, push him off the temple. He slams into the ground, shatters his legs and his pelvis. He army crawls back into the temple and keeps preaching the gospel. This man is a savage. He goes back into the gospel. The Pharisees pick up clubs and they literally beat James to death because he will not keep his mouth quiet. He will not stay silent about Jesus. And that, to me, is what gives this book so much gravity. This man practiced what he preached. This man believed what he taught to the deepest core of his being. Um, And today, what we're going to see is is James speaks on a very powerful issue, uh, practicing what we preach. So here's what I want to do. I want to read this passage, and we're going to pray after that and ask the Lord for help. And I'll just tell you straight up, here's kind of how the sermon's going to flow. We'll, we'll get through what this passage has to say, because although there's a lot of debate about it, it's not really a complex passage. Where we'll actually spend a little bit of time is trying to find the proper motivation for how we live what we're going to read. So with all that said, would you join me now? We're going to pick it up here, James chapter 2. We'll start in verse 14, go through the end of the chapter. Here's how the ESV reads. Verse 14 begins. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself If it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? See what I mean about an aggressive little book? you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. God, as always, pray for Your help um, I'm going to ask right now, Holy Spirit, that You would illuminate this truth to us in ways that, that we haven't seen before. Uh, impress this on us in, in a real helpful, godly way. Uh, not, not in a way that would lead us towards guilt. Not in a way that would lead us away from You or, or cause us to hide. But in a way that would cause us to run right back to You to find deeper fellowship with You, deeper intimacy with You, uh, deeper obedience uh, deeper relationship with you. Help us, God, now to that end. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, this portion of the Epistle of James has caused a lot of debate. There's been a lot of essays written, a lot of scholars, theologians who have gone back and forth over this particular passage. And really where the conflict comes into play is verse 24. Uh, it says here, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So the conflict comes in. Is James saying uh, something different than what Jesus said? Something different than what Peter, Paul said? The answer is no. What what James is trying to say here is that if your faith has truly been placed in Jesus, like it's been placed in a proper way, and and we're going to talk more about that, if your faith really has been placed in Christ properly, there should be, action that follows it. And the way that he's going to kind of tease this out and and make sense of this, he's going to compare and contrast. He'll set up two comparisons. He'll talk about dead faith and then he'll talk about living faith. And and I want to show you this here. What James is saying is uh, basically don't be a hypocrite. He's reiterating what he already mentioned in chapter one. In chapter one, he says, don't just merely listen to the word, do the word. Be doers of the word. And and this is how he'll kind of expand on it in chapter 2 by uh, talking about dead faith and living faith. So let me show you this here. Uh, We'll chat a little bit about dead faith. What does dead faith look like? First and foremost, dead faith has lots of talk, but no action. Lots of talk, no action. And here's how James writes it. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he doesn't have works? So what good is it if you say the right things, but you don't do the right things? And then he gives an example in 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm, filled, but you don't give them the things needed for the body, what good is it? This is like you rolling up on somebody in downtown Modesto. This is somebody that maybe you went to high school with, and they're on the streets, and you see them, and you go up to them and you're like, Dude, Mark, what are you doing on the streets, man? I haven't seen you in forever. This man's been rough, falling on hard times, out here just grinding, struggling, trying to make ends meet. And you go, hey, I'm going to pray for you. And then you just bounce. Now, is prayer bad? No, of course, prayer is a good thing. But James is going, listen, man, he needs actual physical help. He needs clothing. He needs food. He needs shelter. There's physical things you can do to help this person. So what good is it if you just say the right things, but you don't actually do anything? It's no good. One of the hallmarks of dead faith is somebody that does a lot of talking. But let's contextualize this to our day. They do a lot of posting on social media, but very little action. Very little, boots on the ground, hands in the dirt, actual action. That's a dead faith. He'll go on to say here, second, if you're tracking in your notes, second point, a uh, dead faith has the right head knowledge. They know the right things, but they don't do the right actions. Right head knowledge without the right actions. He, he will show this example here in verse 19. It says, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. As you read through the Gospels, it's really interesting, Uh, the demons had a far better developed theology than the disciples had. Uh, The disciples are constantly getting the identity of Jesus wrong. Uh, They're constantly messing up who He is. They're constantly messing up what He's actually come to do. The people that really understand who Jesus is are the demons. And you see over and over and over again, they fall at Christ's feet and they shout out, we know who you are, Son of the Most High God. Have you come to destroy us? The demons know properly who Christ is, but do they follow Him? I mean, they have a built-out theology way better than, than James does, than Peter does, than John does, but they don't follow Him. You know who's most susceptible to this? People who have been in church their whole lives. Those that have grown up in church, those that have been spending long times in church who have well thought out, well developed, mature theologies are very susceptible to committing this error. We trick ourselves by thinking, I know the right truth, Therefore, that is sufficient. James goes, that's dead. It's not enough to keep the right truth compartmentalized up here. It has to to come out. It has to, to be enacted. This is dead faith. We say the right things. We can even know the right things. But if we do not do the right things, what good is it, my brothers? It's no good at all. In contrast here, James will then talk about living faith. Here's what he says about living faith. Living faith hears the Word and strives to do the Word. They hear it and they strive to do it. James is going to give a couple of, of examples from the Old Testament. These are very famous players in the Old Testament. Uh, Abraham. Abraham might be one of the most important figures in Judaism. And he's also going to use the example of Rahab. Here's what he says about Abraham in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. Now, I, I specifically chose the word they strive to do what the word says because if you read the story of Abraham and especially Rahab, Rahab, the, these were not perfect people. Abraham makes all kinds of mistakes. Uh, and, and when I say mistake, I mean like mistakes like impregnating another woman other than his wife. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. These are not spotless, clean, perfect little people. These are conflicted, broken, confused people, kind of like us. But they had clear direction from the Lord, and they responded in a way that was honorable to him. Abraham's story is just bonkers. The guy waits 25 years for his son Isaac to be born. Uh, God comes to him and says, you're going to have a son. They're like, fantastic, we can't have kids, this is awesome news. And then God's like, I'll check back in later. One year goes by, two years goes by, five, 10, 15, 25 years goes by. Finally, they have a son. This would be like uh, God telling you back in 1995 that you're going to have a son. And it doesn't come true till today, September 2020. He waits all these years, his son is born, and, and he experiences this phenomenon. That parents' experience, that grandparents' experience, that aunts' and uncles' experience, that close family and friends' experience. They they fall more and more in love with this little life. They watch this life grow, starts to crawl, starts to talk, is silly, does all these silly little kid things, and they fall more and more in love, and then God goes, I need you to sacrifice your son. What? What? How could you ask this of me, God? Why on earth would God ask that of Abraham? What kind of request is this? You see, all through the Old Testament, God is foreshadowing the the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Old Testament is just this giant foreshadowing of Christ to come. And this is one of the greatest examples. A son, a father rather, being willing to sacrifice his son. And Abraham does. He takes his son up the mountain. You read the Genesis account. It says Abraham believed that God could resurrect him from the dead. He's fully prepared to kill Isaac. So James is going, listen man, Abraham wasn't perfect, but he heard what God said and he acted on it. Same thing with Rahab. Uh, if you read Joshua chapter Two, Rahab is a prostitute in the city of jericho there 's Israelite spies that she houses and protects, and she says to the spies, "I know that the Lord has given you this land. We heard about what you guys did to israel or to Egypt. We heard how the God of Israel split the Red Sea and decimated the Egyptian armies now what 's interesting about this text is she says the Fear of you has fallen upon all of us. That means that the entire city knows they have the right head knowledge about what the God of Israel just did. But none of them respond. None of them act upon it. Except Rahab. She's this like street smart, cunning prostitute. She sees the writing on the wall and she's like, I know your God is about to take this city down. So I'll make a deal with you. I'll protect you if you spare my family. These are the examples. These are the examples James uses. These guys knew the truth, and they strive to act upon it. This is what living faith does. We hear the word, and by God's grace, we try to live it out. Uh, I want to show you something else here, too. Living faith is matured by works. Check this out here in verse 22. Verse 22, James says, You see that faith was active along with works, and faith was completed by his works. Is speaking about Abraham, so what James is saying is that the faith Abraham had motivated him to action, but then there was like this kind of reciprocal, like circular, like a feedback loop almost, where the action started to actually feed the faith. The faith got him to move, but then the movement started to actually kind of help and mature and complete his faith. And, and this is a very, very important truth for us to learn. Uh, you will reach the ceiling of maturity very quickly if all you're doing is just sitting in church listening to sermons. There are parts of your faith that will only be matured, only be grown by action, by putting God's Word into practice. And and that's what this is saying here. He he stepped out, his faith motivated action, but then his action completed his faith. It, It matured it, it seasoned it. Maybe the reason why your faith has stagnated, why it's still infantile, even though you've been coming to church for years, is because you you haven't done anything. You've been just simply consuming without putting anything back out. Now once again, I I told you, I don't think this idea is terribly hard to get. If you say you're a Christian, you should act more more like Christ, right? This isn't terribly complicated. What's really complicated is, how do we actually do this? Because I'll spoil the surprise for you. Everybody that's watching this online, everybody, everybody that will come to this church on the weekends, every single human, Christian or non-Christian alike, they're all hypocrites. Every single one of us is a hypocrite. The Bible has outed you and I. There's no more secret, there's no more like grand surprise. You are inconsistent, so am I. I love when people say, I don't want to go to church, it's full of hypocrites. I'm like, dude, you're right, you'll fit right in. we got room for one more. You're right, it's full of hypocrites, that's why I feel so comfortable there. We are divided, inconsistent people. The Christian walk then is learning how to become more and more Consistent. We we should trend downwards in our hypocrisy, right? If you kind of think of like a stock market graph, uh, there will be hips and valleys and and high points and low points and may even dive, but but the idea should be we kind of trend downwards in our hypocrisy. We should be more and more consistent, and less and less hypocritical. How? How? This is a real dangerous part in the sermon. I'll tell you why it's dangerous, because there's a couple of motivations that I could go to right now that would feel right. They might even look very spiritual, but they will not sustain you. Like I could go the guilt route. I could start hammering you about how bad your sin is and about how you offend God with it and and how painful it was for Jesus on the cross and how dare you belittle and mock the sacrifice he did. I could lay the guilt on thick right now. But here's what I found. Guilt is a very fleeting, shallow motivation. It it will motivate behavior for a little bit, but then it goes away. I could go another route. I could go kind of the emotional, spiritual hype route. I could start preaching really hard and fast and loud. We could bring some musicians in here and and we could play that one worship song that gets everybody's hands in the air and tears streaming down your face and you'll make all these promises to God. I'm never going to sin again. I'm never going to do that again. You'll leave here feeling like you are on cloud nine and then like 30 minutes later that will evaporate. Temptation will come and you'll find yourself right back in the same sin. What is a sustainable motivation to fight our hypocrisy? Three considerations for you. Number one, we must be born again. We must be born again. Not just try harder please, I'm begging you, if all you hear today is, I just got to try harder, I just got to muscle up, I just got to white knuckle more obedience, you are not hearing me. Please, I'm trying to spare you from a lot of hurt. Jesus in John chapter 3, this, this guy Nicodemus asks him, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says, you have to be born again. Now in our culture, what we've what we've created, what we've turned that phrase into is like, you just have to say this prayer. And and sometimes that that works. Sometimes that's true. But here's what I know. You, You can mechanically, robotically just say that prayer with no sincerity. Does that mean you're born again? I would argue probably not. What did he mean by born again? What he means is that you have life from an outside source that is infused into your soul. He didn't mean just keep the checklist of morals better. He, he didn't mean that. He said, you got to be new. There's got to be a new life force that enters your soul and penetrates your mind. How does this happen? It comes from hearing and responding to the Gospel. Once again, the people who are, are most susceptible to not hearing the Gospel... Are those who have been in church their whole lives? There are three components to the gospel that are vitally important. If you miss these three, you haven't heard the gospel. Here they are number one, the removal of condemnation, the imputation, the giving, the imputation of righteousness and the giving of the Holy Spirit. This is the Gospel. The Gospel is the fact that Jesus on the cross has completely removed our condemnation from us. You and I, because of our sin, we have rebelled willingly against God. There is wrath and condemnation against us. We are enemies, objects of His wrath. On the cross, the Father is treating Jesus as if Jesus did our sin. That's why Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our condemnation is removed. Secondly, we are imputed with righteousness. This means you are given by faith. You don't achieve this. You don't have to level up to this. You don't have to stack up enough Jesus tokens to buy it. You are given freely by faith the imputed, perfect righteousness of Jesus. You are draped in His perfection. He fulfilled the law perfectly for us. We received vicariously His perfect completion of the law. So the imagery that's in the Bible is so perfect that it says we're in Christ. It's like we're swallowed up in Him. You are buried in Christ. You are draped, robed in His righteousness. You are drowning in His righteousness. You're 20,000 feet below the surface of the ocean of His righteousness. His goodness, holiness, and purity has been Put on those that believe. This means when the Father looks at me, He sees my condemnation removed, put on the body of Christ, and killed. He sees me drowning in the righteousness of Jesus. But I can have those two things and still sin. So here's where the Holy Spirit becomes massively important. We're given the Spirit of God Almighty. he will change the way you think. Change the way your heart feels. He'll do what David pleaded for in the Psalms. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That's what the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God will teach you how to live up to your true identity. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. Help us to live up to what we've already obtained. Help us to just live up to the identity that we already have. That's what the Spirit of God does. If you miss this, the the rest of what I say is pointless. You have to be born again. Being born again comes from hearing the Gospel and wrapping your arms around it. Putting all your chips in on the Gospel. That's what I'm betting on. That's what I'm banking on. Uh, Secondly, let me show you this here. How do we fight our hypocrisy? Love and joy must become the primary motivation for good works. This is one of the things that the Spirit of God will start to teach you. You see, because of the Gospel, I cannot be any more loved or any less loved by the Father. The love of the Father is perfectly secured for me. My good deeds don't earn me any more favor and my failures don't take away any more favor or love. But, my obedience to the Lord directly impacts my experience of that love. You tracking with what I'm saying there? As I walk in deeper and deeper obedience, my real time experience and, and like feeling of God's love, like the real time sense and, and like in your gut, that is directly impacted by how you obey and, and how you walk. It's the same thing with joy. The Spirit of God will start to teach you. Your joy is directly tied to your obedience. The more we obey and walk according to the Scriptures, the more we will sense, the more we will experience, the more we just kind of feel in our bones the goodness and the love of the Lord. As well as our, our joy increases. And hear me. I mean this even when we have to deny ourselves. I mean this even when we suffer, even when we're persecuted, like even when we have to deny ourselves immediate gratification, even when we have to fight and resist temptation, what that always produces in the long run, deeper intimacy with the Lord and deeper joy in the Lord. This is a sustainable motivation for obedience. This is what will fuel your soul to keep on pursuing Christ. Guilt won't. An emotionally, spiritually charged experience won't. But this will. The more I obey, the more I walk in your love, feel, sense, taste your love, and the more joy I find. And finally here, how do we battle our hypocrisy we develop an ethic of confession and repentance. The great part of the gospel, as I said earlier, we've all been outed. There's no great secret. You're a sinner. You're hypocritical. You're divided. You're inconsistent. So am I. We don't have to pretend like we aren't. We don't have to pretend like we got this thing nailed. We are free to lay our cards on the table because the God of the universe has already outed us. He's already said, you're a hypocrite, you need help. So we just get to go, okay, you're right. Thank you that you came to save me. Thank you that you've removed all my sin and given me your righteousness. And because of the security I have in you, I'm just going to lay my cards out. I've found that that secret sin is a lot like mold. Mold works great when it stays dark and it stays kind of damp and you don't ever open things up. You don't ever let light or air, fresh air in there. Sin works the same way you got to crack open the dark, secret parts of your heart and of your mind, and you got to air it out with a brother or sister. I'll tell you this, be wise about this. Don't just start airing out your dirty laundry with everyone. You won't have friends, okay? Don't do that. Find a brother or sister that is trusted, that you've got some relationship, you've got some time with. For me personally, it is one of the most liberating things to just lay your cards out, bro, here's where I'm at. I'm struggling in this area. I'm sinning. I need help. Pray for me. Hold me accountable. Check in with me in a week and see how I'm doing. So all this to say. Two questions. All this leading up to these final two questions I want to give you. Number one is your faith in Jesus. Are your chips in on what Jesus has done for you? And secondly, how do you need to kill your hypocrisy this week? What's going on? What's the secret part of your heart, of your life, of your mind, that you need to open up the covers, you need to get some light in there, you need to get some fresh air in there. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this powerful little book. Help us now. Wherever we are at, God, I know we're all in different places, to be people that have our arms wrapped tightly around the Gospel of Jesus. And I pray that His Gospel would would give us new life. Teach us, Lord, that obedience to You will only grow our intimacy, only grow our love and our joy towards You. May we be a people who avoid secrecy. Help us, God. Give us the courage. We need courage and strength to confess, to repent our sin before You, before our brothers and sisters, that it might heal our souls. I, God, I want to be the real deal. And I pray that for this church, that we would be the real deal. We need your help in this, Lord. Show us our blind spots. Show us where we are inconsistent. And I pray these things in your worthy, beautiful name. Amen.